it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather, and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 70. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to discuss risk. We're going to talk about all the different types of risks there are with investing, and we have a very interesting show coming up for you. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Andrew, and he's going to start us off. Yeah, so when I think about risk, um, and when many people define risk, whether you talk to an investment advisor, you talk to maybe an individual investor who is more experienced and kind of understand what the risks are when it comes to investing your money. Uh, There's kind of like three major ones. So we'll we'll discuss each of those. And, you know, it's very important to talk about risk and think about risk. If you go back to the very basic definition of an investment, which I always love to refer to when I'm talking about dividends. But, you know, if you say investment 101, what is that? It's essentially money that you put it, you put money at risk and in order to be compensated for that risk, you have a reward. You have gains, you have an income stream. And that's essentially what an investment is. And you know, that's no matter how what kind of investment you're making, that's gonna be how it works. Even if you do something like as simple as lending money to somebody and charging them an interest rate, there's gonna be risk there. There's risks that you lose all your money because somebody skips town and then they don't pay you those those payments, right? And so obviously our shows focus a lot on the stock market. We'll talk about the stock market risks and some of the various factors that maybe somebody who's a little bit more green or if that's the right term, you know, somebody more new to the market, somebody who's not as educated, they might not have thought about these different things. So it's important to think about them important to learn them, but also important to have a solution, right? To to be able to understand that there is risk, but historically and moving forward, there are different ways to mitigate that risk and it can help, you know, it can help your overall returns. It can help the type of results that you will see from your investing. And so make sure that's something that you're thinking about and you are 
forming your strategy in order in order to fight those risks. So the first one, and this is very common, uh, commonly talked about in finance. It's uh, market risk, and so just the fact that you're in the stock market in general, you're going to have market risk. Um, another way it's it's kind of referred to is it's called systematic risk. And basically, you know, it's it's the risk that you get for 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 putting yourself into the system. So this is something that you are not able to really have an easy solution to 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 go against. So uh, if you think about the other two risks, so uh, a big one is business risk, and that's the risk of a stock you're owning of the company going bankrupt. That's called unsystematic risk. And then you also have like interest rate risk. So with market risk, uh, you can't diversify your way out of it. So for unsystematic risk, this is business risk, uh, a business of any one stock losing a lot of value or even going bankrupt and, and you lose your whole investment. You can The way you counter that is by reinvesting. I'm sorry, not reinvesting. Uh, the way you counter that is by diversifying. If you have enough eggs in a basket and one goes bad, one cracks, at least you have those nine other eggs, those 19 other eggs. And so you still have a big part of your investment capital intact. With market risk, you cannot diversify that away unless you spread out, you know, you, unless you put less money into the, into the market. So because it's stock market risk, a way you can essentially combat that is by holding different types of assets. And so that's something like an asset allocation strategy, something like adding bonds into the mix, something like having hedges or investing in different currencies. I guess there's a lot of different ways that you can start to try to fight the risks of the stock market that are inherent with the stock market. If you look at the history of the stock market, you look at a chart, it might not seem like it, it fluctuates so highly up and down. Um, if you know anything about like math and, and the way that charts work, you'll know that there's um, like logarithmic charts and like straight up just data charts. So the reason they use logarithmic, sorry. Having a tough time pronouncing this word, and I'll try not to get too mathy on everybody, but something like log, like a log chart, will show you percentages because as the numbers kind of get higher, um, the chart the chart starts to as the numbers get higher, the the chart starts to not accurately show what an investor is really feeling with and and how their gains and losses are going. So with something that's like a log, uh, it, it shows more of like the percentages of how an investment's going up and down. But anyway, so if if you're really if you really hone down on the history of the stock market, if you hone down on the charts as they go through their different time periods, the different decades, the twenties, the thirties, the fifties, the seventies, the eighties, you'll see that there are huge swings in the value of the overall stock market. There's huge bull and bear markets. There's long periods of time where the stock market 
seems like a horrible place to be because the price is not going high. Uh, and other times where the market seems like a place where everybody should be because you have more than double digit gains. Sometimes you'll have 20% gains a year uh, for several years. And so it's important to realize that this is just part of the game. This is just part of the stock market and you're going to have to be okay with these huge swings in values. I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, you know, I, we hear about the stock market today being however many trillion it is, right? I don't know if it's 19 trillion, 20 trillion. The stock market has a lot of money in it. Uh, all the stocks in there are worth plenty, right? If you go back to 1925, the overall stock market was 25 billion. That's the, the value of every single stock on the on the New York Stock Exchange was 25 billion. In just four years, from 1925 to 1929, the value tripled, so it became almost 90 billion. Again, same group of stocks. And then there was the huge, uh, what they call the Great Crash of 1929. And then you'll probably remember the Great Depression followed that. So in another three years, by 1932, the market value dropped all the way down to 16 billion. So you can see, you know, from 1925, 25 billion to 90 billion to 16 billion, quite a lot of fluctuation. And while there's been, depending on the recession, depending on the stock market crash, there's been varying, uh, varying levels of this kind of volatility that you see in the stock market. But, you know, if, if you, if you calculate like a 40-year chart of, and you include that time period, the overall returns are very close to the, the average market return, which we hear about, which is 10%. So it's, it's, it's really like a, a roller coaster. It's uh, Dave Ramsey. He's a big personal finance guru. He talks about investing, especially in the stock market, and I guess in general, as being on a roller coaster and the only people who get hurt are the ones who jump off. So I understand, you know, we all, we all understand that it's very, very difficult to stay invested when there are huge swings in value, but it's very, very important. So I believe that rather than trying to al asset allocate your way out of risk, you know, and, and this is very, very specific to somebody who's building a portfolio. When you're retired and, and you rely on retirement income in order to support yourself, depending on where your portfolio is, what kind of stocks you own, then it, it could really make sense to kind of asset allocate that market risk away. But for somebody who's building a portfolio and something that we discussed back in episode five about being having a portfolio that's 100% in stocks, the best, really the best way to to counter this this unavoidable market risk, the risk that you will face while being in the stock market is really to just hold and hold for the long term. And also just dollar cost average, always adding new money into the stock market. Because if you hold over the long term, even though there's huge swings in the short term, over the long term, we've seen for over 100 years that there's a very... The returns come close, very, very close to 10% a year, and that's with reinvested dividends. So you really want to just 
be in it for the long term, be holding your stocks for the long term. And that's really the only way that you'll survive all these big ups and downs. We've talked about again how timing the market is not a good idea and how even if you're a terrible market timer, you will have fantastic returns just by holding long enough and letting the market work its way through and and you just accumulate different numbers of shares and and all of those things. So that's really my thoughts on kind of fighting market risk, systematic risk. And uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, Dave. Uh, I do. I think, you know, some additional aspects of market risk that, that I wanted to touch on were uh, political slash legislative risk and also currency risk and inflationary risk. So let's talk a little bit about political and legislative risk. So these are also st- uh, systematic uh, events that you have to deal with. So political and legislative risk, that's obvious, pretty easy. So Congress has the power and the ability to affect how the SEC works. And the SEC is the governing body of the stock exchange. And so they can enact laws that can, A, make it harder for people to buy and sell stocks. They can act, you know, different laws that can make things more expensive. You know, there's just so many different ways that that the Congress can go to affect what's going on in the stock market. And I'll give you a, a sort of recent example. With the Great Recession that we had in 2008 and 9, uh, the political parties decided that banks were evil and were the epitome of causing what happened. And I can't argue with them on that, but they enacted quite a few laws. The, the Dodd-Frank law, for example, was a law that was enacted to help, I guess, govern the banks and control them and try to put limits on them. And by doing this, they enacted different laws that caused them to have different capital allocations. In other words, when every year when a bank figures out what their earnings are when they file their reports, they have to go through stress tests. And these stress tests allow them to dictate to the bank what how much money they can use for A, reinvestment, or B, whether they're going to do any sort of uh, stock buybacks, or C, if they're going to pay out a dividend and what kind of dividend they're going to pay. And so if the bank is not have enough liquidity to cover all the debts that they have. So every time that we deposit money into a bank, that's actually considered a debt because the bank owes that money back to us. Now, the part of the way banks work is they'll take that money, obviously, and use it to do other things like loan people money and use it to reinvest and other such things. I'm not going to go too deep into that, but the government has decided that each bank has a certain stress level that they need to adhere to to make sure that they're liquid so that they have enough money to cover any sort of you know major catastrophes that could happen in a stock market and they do this to try to help protect against what happened in 2008 and 2009 unfortunately you know there's lots of bad people out there and they'll figure out ways to manipulate the system and they did in 2008, 2009. And, you know, they'll probably figure out a way to do it too. I'm not smart enough to figure that out, but I'm sure they will. But anyway, so the government to try to help mitigate that risk has enacted different laws, particularly with the banks recently to try to help control that risk. 
And so those are some of the things that you have to kind of pay attention to. And, you know, whether you're on the right or the left side of the aisle doesn't really matter. There's all kinds of different ways that the government can use to help try to a control and influence what happens in the markets. And, Another additional risk along with that is currency risk and inflationary risk. So currency risk. So this really kind of covers two different aspects. If for, for Andrew and I, we're majority, we invest in the United States. So the currency risk for us is more of a issue of how the dollar is doing outside of the United States and whether it's strong or whether it's weak. It can also affect if your company is doing a lot of business outside of the country. And I'll give you an example, uh, Apple or Corning, who is a company that I invest in. They do a lot of business overseas in Japan and China in particular and South Korea. And so they have a currency risk, which they do different things to try to mitigate for the investor. But when there's large swings in the currency, that affects how their business does as far as their earnings and their profits and their sales and all those kinds of things. So that can affect the pricing of what happens in the United States when you're looking at the stock market. And so the currency risk can kind of go in and out of where you invest your money. So let's say you invest a lot of your money overseas. Let's say you invest in some of the, you know, emerging economies or maybe some of the up and coming countries like maybe China or India. If you invest in those companies, when you want to liquidate those companies, you are taking a risk at that time about whether the currency is up or down compared to the dollar, because you're going to have to convert it to dollars and then bring that money back into the United States. And when you do that, you are taking a risk. And one of the ways you can hedge against that risk is you can have different currency, you know, investments that you can do to kind of hedge against the fluctuations of the different currencies that you're investing in, or you can just not invest overseas. I mean, that's another option. That's I, I choose to do that just because I don't understand what goes on in India and I'm not bashing India by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't understand the country. I don't understand the, the economics and it's just not something I'm comfortable investing in partly because I don't understand it and partly because I don't understand the currency and I don't want to, that's just not something I want to deal with. Uh, so that's kind of my thoughts on that. Inflationary risk, I guess would be you know, the biggest issue with that is talking about, we've talked a little bit about this in the past. When you invest in something, let's say that you put all of your money in a, in a savings account at a brick, brick and mortar bank, those accounts are going to be making anywhere from uh, 0.5% to maybe 1% if the bank's really generous. And those, that money is going to cost, that's going to cost you money because you're going to be losing money against the inflation. And if inflation is 2% and you're investing at 1%, you're losing Losing one percent every single year, and so in you have to be cognizant of that when you're investing and deciding what you want to do with your large portions of money, and that's why you'll hear people talk a lot about real returns and how that hedges against inflation, and that's something you very very much have to keep in in back of your mind when you're investing, especially if you're going to be putting large amounts of money into one particular device, whether that's a money market account, a CD, or any of the kinds of things. Because if you tie that up money money up for a long period of time and inflation continues to rise, then that can you're going to lose money because your dollar is not going to be worth the same in 5, 10, 15 years. I mean, let's think about, you know, when I was a kid, I, 
you know, gasoline was 50 cents a gallon. I know that's makes me sound like I'm really old, but it wasn't that long ago. And, you know, I remember my mom freaking out because it went up to a dollar and, you know, here we are at what, 285 here in Wisconsin. I'm sure in Los Angeles, it's probably, you know, $7, but, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, yeah, almost four. Okay. See, there you go. So, you know, it's, that it's the dollar is still the same. I mean, you know, you, the, whatever you make is still worth what it is today, but gas has gone up that much. You know, I remember buying eggs were, you know, 55 cents. I remember buying milk. It was less than a dollar. Now it's, you know, almost $3. So, you know, all those, all that inflation takes a toll. And so when you buy your dollar today, you know, that dollar 10 years from now, is not going to be worth as much. And that's why you have to make sure that when you're investing, that you're investing with that in mind to help, you know, to reduce that risk because, you know, nobody wants to buy something for $10 and it'd be worth $6 10 years from now. That's, you know, that's, that's how you lose money. And when you retire, that's really critical because if you're living off of your investment income at that point, inflation is going to be one of your biggest enemies. And that's what you have to fight for and plan for as you go forward. So I guess those are some of my thoughts on some of those risks. Hey, you. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. So I'll talk about, or I'll ask you, inflationary risk, and then kind of circle back to the other ones you talked about. So how can an average investor combat inflationary risk? Is it as simple as buying stocks or dot, dot, dot? Well, that's a, you know, that's the kind of the $24 question. You know, I, I think for me at this point in time, it would be buying stocks because if you're investing in the stock market and you're looking at trying to even just matching the S&P, you know, if you're looking at a 10% return over a period of time, you're going to outdo inflation. And that's kind of, I guess for now, that would definitely be the way you'd want to go. Now, who's to say that that won't be still be the case five, 10 years from now with the, with the Fed raising the interest rates, you're going to start to see some of the more very stable, traditional, slower moving investments like treasury bonds, treasury bills, savings accounts, CDs. You're going to start to see some of those rates rise. But the trick with that is, investing with enough of investing in those with enough ability to outpace inflation. So keeping an eye on what inflation is, is important when you're deciding whether you want to tie your money up with that. When I say tie your money up, when you put it into a CD, for example, you have a a contractual agreement with a bank that you're going to put this money in an account for, you know, anywhere from three months to 20 years. And when you tie it up for a longer period of time, you're, basically cutting yourself off against any sort of, uh, you know, inflationary risk, because if the inflation continues to rise, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And that's why I'm very hesitant to use those kinds of investments at this point in time. Yeah. So I know historically inflation has been around two to 3% a year. Again, kind of like the way the stock market's been, like in the 1980s, there were huge, huge percentages of inflation and also interest rates were very, very high at that time. 
But over the long term, it's it's been closer to the two to three percent. And I like that idea of not tying up your money, especially because the stock market naturally has its own um, the nature of the stock market and businesses in general can can combat inflation. I'll give you an example. Uh, when you talked about like the price of different groceries or the price of gas, let's say we talk about like the price of a cheeseburger. If the inflation on that goes up, uh, if cheeseburgers all around the world or all around the country are all becoming more and more expensive, well, you know, the businesses, all the competitors, they're they're going to move their prices up the same. You know, if, if the price of ground beef goes up, if the price of uh, hamburger buns goes up, bread goes up, then all these businesses have no choice but to raise their prices. And you know, a business could refuse to raise their prices and they will quickly go out of business because if you're losing money on hamburgers instead of making money, it's going to be hard to run a profitable business. Now, as an investor, if, if you hold a stock in one of those hamburger companies, uh, you're you're kind of, in a way, combating that inflation because uh, companies and industries are able to raise their prices and if they if they can do it, at a rate that's uh, at inflation or beating inflation, they could maintain their earnings or even grow their earnings. And so I think when you think about that on the small scale and then expand that out to the large scale, stocks can be a great way to combat inflation just based on the premise of that's kind of how business world works and how being a part owner, owning a stock, and that's how that works as well. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. 
In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Uh, currency risk. Do you see any practical ways of combating currency risk? Other than what I mentioned, I'm not an expert in currency risk. So I guess I would be hesitant to say, you know, hey, yes, you should buy this currency against this currency. And, you know, I don't know enough about investing in actual currencies to be an expert or to, I guess, weigh out an opinion on that. Really, my only exposure to that would be like I was mentioning with the companies that some of the companies I've invested in that have operations overseas and and how they handle dealing with that currency risk for them, which of course affects me as an investor in their company. Uh, that's really kind of my, I guess, level of expertise. And I wouldn't want to give people advice on that if I don't really know anything about it. Is it fair to say, uh, maybe by having a, a diversified portfolio of stocks that there's a good chance that many of those companies, I mean, especially in the global economy we see today, just by having enough stocks that you have a good exposure to the whole global kind of all the different currencies. And so uh, by nature, you're getting at least some sort of, you're getting some sort of, uh, hedge against that kind of risk. I would say so. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's but, what I would think too. I mean, if you're kind of trying to own different currencies and, and people talk about this with Bitcoin, if you're trying to allocate certain portions of your portfolio to try to mitigate this currency risk, sure you can do that. But <laughs> uh, if you look, if you know anything about the history of the world and empires, I mean, it's very hard to predict which, which nations ultimately prosper and which ones decline and you know you're you're losing out on income dividends and the fact that you know you want to stick to your your circle of competence and knowing that it's it's not too difficult to analyze businesses compared to countries and currencies i think it it makes a, a strong argument for kind of sticking to stocks and and trying to just build a diversified portfolio and then you know kind of circling back to just holding for the long enough term and as the stock market fluctuations kind of ride their course kind of ride out and go through all of that i think uh, some of the currency stuff global stuff all kind of works itself out too Is that fair that's fair okay uh, let's move on to business risk, uh, and that's unsystematic risk. This is something that I try to focus on a lot. I kind of take the Ted Williams approach, as I mentioned last week or two weeks ago, uh, to picking stocks, which is instead of trying to find the best winners, uh, avoid the biggest losers. Ted Williams looks to the strike zone. He identifies the parts where he doesn't want to swing and then just focuses on swinging on on the high percentage parts of the strike zone. I look at stocks as the same way. And so by reducing 
reducing the chance of big losses, reducing the chance of permanent loss of capital, you can increase your overall returns. If if you want kind of specific data on that, I when I talk about the e-leather, I have like a chart and and a table with with the different percentages you need in order to come back from a loss. And so actually when you lose money on a particular stock, it takes more money to actually make that back in order to break even. So as an example, if a stock gets cut in half, you now need to, that stock now needs to double in price in order to just go back to where it was. And so now you're talking about a hundred percent gain versus a 50% loss. And it gets worse and worse the, the more and more you lose on a stock. And so by trying to combat and, and trying to really be cognizant of a particular business's risk of going bankrupt, then you can try to mitigate as much of that effect to your portfolio as you can. Uh, it's a big reason why we talk about investing with a margin of safety and then that last part, emphasis on the safety. You're really looking when you're analyzing these businesses, you're, you want to look at the balance sheet like we talked about before. You want to make sure that balance sheet's strong. You want to make sure debt's not too high. You want to make sure that the company is not going to be, you know, the company is going to have enough to pay expenses and, and be able to manage their debt payments and, and all of those sorts of things through good times and through the bad. So a, a great way to combat business risk, unsystematic risk is finding the stocks that have strong balance sheets, the one with strong business results and, and strong business performance, uh, diversifying, as mentioned before, making sure you have enough eggs in your basket where one cracks, it's not going to kill you. And also uh, talk, looking at like the price you pay because uh, that business risk, while we you kind of mentioned going bankrupt, it also has to do with you know just losing a lot of money on any particular stock, and so if you take the the Benjamin Graham approach, the value investing approach, buying low, buying a stock at a discount to its intrinsic value, and that margin of safety, uh, that can be a big way to limit your losses and also up your gains, and so that could be a whole another topic for another day. But I think it's something. It's very, very important to consider when you talk about risks, because especially if, if you're focusing on a on a more concentrated stock portfolio, you really need to consider what are valuations, what is what is the value of this company, and how much am I paying, and how strong is it in the industry and just overall and in its results. So those are things that you really need to think long and hard about, and I argue. <laughs> With my big focus on the value trap indicator, my big focus on emphasis on the safety, I argue it's it's arguably maybe the best, the most important thing to consider when you're trying to buy stocks. And so it's something to keep in mind. So I'll go ahead and talk about another kind of small detail of this that relates to business risk. Um and this isn't really talked about much at all, and it's because lately we, we've had plenty of it, and uh, we don't know what the future holds, but what I'm talking about is liquidity risk, and it's the risk of not being able to pull out your money on any particular investment. So 
one good thing of all the algorithm traders and all the all the uh all these day traders that that kind of move the market is is they provide a lot of liquidity because there's a lot of trades going on and so if you're trying to sell a stock there's always somebody on the other side of the trade when there's lots of day traders and algorithmic traders and all those things it's it's quite easy to find somebody to buy it but it's still something that there is a possibility in the future of of becoming a problem and i don't know if maybe you can point to the flash crashes as being an example of that uh various times where uh, an exchange will have to suspend trading for the end of the day. Something I found, and I've never heard this talked about, and I just discovered this recently. Back uh, during World War One, uh, everybody kind of freaked out, and you know, with good reason, right? I mean, I don't know if there was a war of that scale before World War One, but you had exchanges in Vienna, Berlin, Rome, Paris and london and others that all shut down uh this was in july of 1914 because everybody was selling and everybody was panicking and so those exchanges completely shut down the new york stock exchange obviously the u.s exchange it suspended its trading and not just for a day not just for two days we're talking about from july 31st 1914 all the way until mid-december so (laughs) almost almost uh full half year that you couldn't you couldn't uh trade stocks and even until 1915 they had restrictions on certain stocks on on certain prices and so we've seen liquidity risk in the past before in the stock market who knows if if that's going to happen in the future but i think it just goes back to the importance of having a long-term approach warren buffett always talks about how when he tries to pick stocks, he's looking for stocks where if he were to buy this business and the stock market were to close for 10 years, he would be totally fine with that and he wouldn't panic. And so I think that's a good approach to have when you talk about stocks, the stock market, and just the importance of, again, buying and holding and and being in there for the long, long term. The last kind of risk, which I guess you can get really deep into the weeds with this and something I guess I'm really passionate about. Um, but for the sake of brevity and the fact that we've gone on quite long for this episode, I'll just kind of go over the basics of it, but there's a risk uh, and there's an interest rate risk and reinvestment risk. So interest rate risk talks about obviously interest rates change. We kind of touched on that a little bit, but when you talk about bonds, fixed income, and, and you know this affects people in retirement who are holding bonds. There's two two kind of risks that they need to consider. And so with interest rate risk, you have the risk of bond prices moving in a, in a way that you don't want. So the way bond prices and interest rates work is they tend to be inversely correlated, meaning that when interest rates goes go up, the price of bonds tends to go down, and, and when interest rates go down, the, the price of bonds tends to go up. And so uh, the the reason for that t- speaks to reinvestment risk because uh, if you know how a bond works, you buy a bond. Uh, let's say it's a ten year bond, and, and we're talking about this is the same whether it's it's a government bond or a corporate bond. So let's talk about a corporate bond. Say I am a bond investor in Apple, right? 
And so I put in a thousand dollars. They're going to give me a certain yield. And so for over 10 years, they're going to pay me that consistent yield. So let's say it's 4%. Year one, they're going to pay me 4%. Year two, pay me 4%. All the way until year 10. At the end of year 10, they're going to give me my thousand dollars back and I will have accumulated all of those interest payments. And so that's going to be my, that's going to make up my return. Now let's say interest rates dropped, uh, from like an average of 4% to like 1%. Well, now if I were to buy another bond in Apple, it's quite likely that the yield on that bond would be much lower than 4%. It would maybe be closer to 1%. So I could buy another 10 year bond then, but I would only be getting 1% a year instead of 10% a year. So that reinvestment risk is always going to be there. You know, I have the the risk of being locked up in a 10-year bond. And if interest rates drop, now suddenly, you know, now people don't want to buy these bonds because they're not going to pay a good enough yield. I mean, 1% is not even going to beat inflation, right? So why would I want to buy a bond uh, that has 10 that that will lock up my money for 10 years. And so uh bond prices will move based off that. The the risk with bonds is, you know, people I feel like there's a big misconception on that and, and if you don't really understand how bonds work, I feel like you can kind of think that the bond market is really working like the stock market when it's not quite doing that. So like, you know, the price of that Apple bond can move up and down as interest rates move or even as the company maybe has liquidity problems or has is flush with cash. You know, th- those bond prices can move. But as a bond investor for that individual bond, as long as you're holding until maturity, you're holding for those 10 years, you're going to get a consistent payment no matter what happens, no matter what happens with interest rates, no matter what happens with inside the company, as long as they're still open for business and still making those payments, you're going to get the same results. So to me, you know, this interest rate risk and reinvestment risk is not something really to, to try to focus on too, too much. So you, the price of your bond is fluctuating is not going to impact your overall return as long as you're going to hold it to maturity. And with reinvestment risk, that's something that, yes, it's there, but it, how do you that's almost like saying, oh, I want to time the market or I want to try to. Essentially, that's what you're saying. You want to time the market and, and you want to try to time the, the movement of interest rates, which is just as foolish as trying to time the movement of economic cycles or any any other type of movement. So in my opinion, you know, if, if you're buying bonds and you're worried about these type of risks, I would say that, you know, there's not much you can do about it. Maybe the best thing you can do is lock in a high yield. Uh, when there's a high yield, lock in a longer holding period. But there's no way that you're going to be able to time it perfectly. And, you know, you can kind of adjust your allocations as time goes on and as interest rates move. Maybe don't lock yourself into 30 years on a 1% yield. But, you know, at the same time, uh, it's, it's very possible that you might have to, you know, it's it's very possible that this is just kind of par for the course. This is just the, uh, you'll just have to eat some of the uh, suboptimal returns that you might get, um, even though you're doing your best to kind of counter it. 
but again, over the long term, uh, over over as long as you have enough of an allocation in stocks, that's that's kind of really the best way to to kind of combat that. Hopefully, like I like to talk about, hopefully you're building a dividend stock portfolio. You're building. You have several stocks which are are paying you dividends that are also rising over time that you've reinvested over time and, and and are giving you a good income, and so that way you don't have to rely too much on bonds and you could you could be pulling out dividend income from stocks you bought ten twenty thirty four years ago and and living off of those and and not worry too much about maybe suboptimal performance from the bond aspect of your portfolio. And so again, I'm talking about the retirement, close to retirement kind of stage of, of a portfolio, building a portfolio and maintaining a portfolio. And that's really when I would start to think about bonds. And you know, the, the best cure seems to be prevention in that case. So you know, understand that there is risks with bonds, but the kind of, if you compare the risks between like reinvestment risk versus market risk i think market risk has is a much greater has a much greater spread it, it's it's a much more volatile thing and so with bonds the interest rate and reinvestment risk is something to keep in mind but uh as the saying goes i guess an what is it an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure so maybe keep that in mind and also do some of the other things like playing with holding periods and you know maturity dates and doing all of that but not not stressing out if if it doesn't turn out perfectly because nobody can time the market nobody can time interest rates if people could they'd be they'd be billionaires and and, and they would they would uh you would hear about the most successful investors being these great macro and and interest rate timers and that's just not been the case uh Many more billionaires are entrepreneurs and people like Warren Buffett, value investors, more owners rather than these insanely genius kind of crystal ball type people. So I think these three huge things, the market risk, which is systematic, business risk, which is unsystematic, and interest rate risk is all things that investors will have to deal with at one point or another, something to keep in mind, but luckily there's strategies to combat these things, strategies to mitigate these risks. And we've discussed those hopefully in length and, and hopefully given you a point of confidence where you can mitigate them. Like I said at the very, very top, the absolute definition of an investment is taking on some sort of risk so you cannot eliminate risk you can never completely eliminate risk but there's ways to mitigate it and so try to mitigate that as much as you can in order to get the best results that you can all right folks well that is going to wrap up the session tonight i hope you enjoyed our discussion on risk and all the different aspects of it and you found some learning that you could use to help you avoid some of these risks Investing in the stock market is always going to be a risk and you can't completely ever eliminate it, but you can do your best to try to mitigate some of the losses or minimize it as best you can. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. You guys have a great week. Thanks for listening. Invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this content. 
Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.